You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The U.S. intelligence community says that China is actively trying to recruit spies over LinkedIn. The Windshift Espionage Group is active in the Gulf. Global imposter ransomware continues its evolution and spread. The Five Eyes issues some communiques about cooperation in cyberspace. Russia would like to block Telegram if it could do so without too much collateral traffic damage. And supply chain questions about Google's Titan. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, August 31st, 2018. Senior U.S. counterintelligence official William Evanina, whose formal title is Director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, warned that Chinese intelligence services are actively using LinkedIn to recruit American agents. The Chinese recruiting campaign involves contacting thousands of LinkedIn members at a time. The effort apparently involves catfishing. Director Evanina declined to disclose how many bogus Chinese accounts U.S. authorities had discovered. He also wouldn't say how many Americans had been contacted or with what success. Evanina recommended that LinkedIn take action to purge itself of inauthentic accounts, pointing to Twitter's recent house cleaning as a good model for LinkedIn to consider. He was clear in that he regarded LinkedIn as a victim in this case. LinkedIn told Reuters that they've been talking with U.S. law enforcement agencies about Chinese espionage and that they did what they could to control catfishing and other abuse. The company's head of trust and safety, Paul Rockwell, said, quote, We've never waited for requests to act and actively identify bad actors and remove bad accounts using information we uncover and intelligence from a variety of sources, including government agencies. End quote. Evanina's warning was motivated by the June conviction of Kevin Mallory, a retired CIA officer, on charges of conspiracy to commit espionage. A Mandarin speaker, Mallory found himself financially pinched in retirement. He was contacted over LinkedIn by an individual using the name Richard Yang, who represented himself as a headhunter. Yang arranged a contact between Mallory and a third man, who said he worked for a Shanghai think tank. Mallory made two trips to Shanghai, during which he agreed to sell defense secrets to his Chinese contacts. Mallory, who the U.S. government thinks probably knew full well what he was getting into, will be sentenced in September and might get life. But hey, doesn't everybody recruit over LinkedIn? 
It's worth noting that this kind of recruiting can look initially legitimate. It's not as though you'll get a direct message inviting you to connect because, hey, you look like you might have treasonous skills. Nor are foreign intelligence services scouring LinkedIn for profiles of people who describe themselves as driven professionals with a passion for betraying their country, reasonable compensation to be determined in negotiation. No, the recruiters seek to connect, elicit a response, habituate you to talking with them, then to doing small favors or good offices, and before you know it, you've moved from advising someone on your common hobby of stamp collecting to handing over plans for an F-35 radar. Maybe the contact is someone you've never met, or maybe it's a friend of an acquaintance, or maybe it's someone you vaguely remember swapping cards with at that busy rootin' tootin' cyber shootin' happy hour just outside Fort Gordon. You remember, don't you? They had a bull ride in the bar room and everything. By the way, if you've ever tried to connect with our editor and he hasn't responded, it's probably because he thinks you're some kind of intelligence officer. That kind of suspicion, it's like a sickness with him. He doesn't mean to be rude. A hacking crew called Windshift is exploiting macOS vulnerabilities in an espionage campaign directed against the Gulf Cooperation Council. That's Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE, Qatar, Bahrain, and Oman. The malware payload is distributed in spear phishing attacks. They promise more details later. There's no further attribution from Dark Matter, the security company that announced the discovery. As difficult as it may be to look at that target list and not think of that regional rival in the Gulf Cooperation Council, the one with the capital in Tehran, it's important, as always, to remember that many, most all, nations spy and that there are many services who'd be interested in the Gulf. Kihu360 warns that global imposter ransomware is now out in more than 20 variants, and they expect it to continue to evolve and spread. The researchers consider it the most troubling family of ransomware currently in circulation. Russia would like to block the Telegram encrypted messaging service, but their attempts have been unsuccessful. They haven't yet come up with a way of stopping Telegram without also stopping a lot of other traffic, and that's unacceptable collateral damage. The Five Eyes, as the intelligence services of the U.S., U.K., Australia, Canada, and New Zealand are called, in recognition of roughly a century of close cooperation, agreed this week to increase collaboration in cyberspace. The official communique covered much familiar ground, determination to work against terrorism, cooperation on law enforcement, border security, with an emphasis on fighting human trafficking, a shared commitment to a safe and open Internet, determination to protect children, and so on. Four points are worth particular mention. First, the five governments expressed a common determination to share intelligence and resources to thwart foreign influence operations. Second, the governments say their talks this year have focused on tangible deliverables and practical collaboration. Third, they regret that industry declined their invitation to participate in the discussion because none of this will work without industry help. And finally, they're not going to give up the crypto wars. They remain concerned that end-to-end -end encryption makes it too easy for criminals and terrorists to operate with impunity. The discussions produced a joint statement of principles on access to evidence and encryption. One concession to the pro-encryption side. Governments should recognize that the nature of encryption is such that there will be situations 
where access to information is not possible, although such situations should be rare. Google's Titan Security Key, introduced recently with pride and aplomb, is manufactured in China, which has already prompted spoil sports to spit in the soup by asking for some transparency about supply chain security. Come on, guys, lighten up. We're pretty sure someone we connected with on LinkedIn told us those supply chains in China are great, just aces. Monday is Labor Day here in the U.S., and we'll be observing the federal holiday by taking the day off, probably to hit the Maryland State Fair up in Timonium. We'll resume normal publication and podcasting on Tuesday. Of course, Research Saturday will be up as usual tomorrow, as will the week that was. It's just Monday we're taking off. Take a breather if you can, and we'll see you next week. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's from the Sands Institute. He's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, welcome back. Um, we have seen a lot of stories coming by about uh, iPhone security and how uh, Apple has sort of been upping their game when it comes to some of the protections when it comes to the iPhone, doing time limits and so forth. Uh, but uh, you wanted to share some news about how thieves are still managing to unlock iPhones. So what do you have to share today? Yeah, what you mentioned is really, you know, when law enforcement tries to access an, a locked iPhone, they sometimes have access to these Craylock devices or what they're called. Essentially, brute force uh, the 
the pin that used to lock the device. So best practice, now you lock your device with a pin code. But uh, thieves go a little bit differently about unlocking uh, iPhones. They have a couple of neat sort of social engineering tricks that they tend to use. Now, one trick, for example, is your iPhone, well, it has a removable SIM card. This SIM card can be plugged into another phone. Typically, that other phone now takes on the identity of your iPhone. So that phone, which is owned by the thief, it's of course not locked. And it will now receive, for example, text messages that are used for password reset in some cases. And the attacker also now knows your phone number, which can be helpful for sort of other tricks that they're playing, like social engineering tricks. Often when your iPhone is lost or stolen, you will now, for example, set up the the iPhone in locked mode, which basically alerts you whenever it is being found. Well, uh, what attackers are doing now is they'll send you a fake message that appears to come from Apple that tells you, hey, your phone was found. Click here to display the location. Imagine what happens next. Well, you click on the link and you end up on a phishing site. So now the attacker is able to get the username and password for your iCloud account. And with that, they may be able to turn off this lock on the phone and reset it. In some cases, they may also just call you. If you display, for example, a phone number on the iPhone, and you can do that uh, when you mark it as lost or stolen, they'll call you and they say, hey, we found your phone. And well, but we want to send it back to you, but we first have to know that it's actually your phone. And then they trick you into unlocking the phone in order to do this verification. So a lot of social engineering happening here. Now, there are a couple of things that you can do to protect yourself. First of all, and that's a feature that's not often used, you can protect your SIM card with a pin code. What happens is when the iPhone is turned off and you turn it back on, before the SIM card can be used, you have to enter a four-digit PIN code. You can do this in your cell network settings within the iPhone, and that protects yourself from someone removing the SIM card and plugging it into another phone. Hmm. The second thing that you definitely should do is enable two-factor authentication to prevent some of these phishing attacks. All right. <laughs> it's good information. Johannes Ulrich, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the CyberWire, Wired senior writer Andy Greenberg. He's author of the recent Wired article, The Untold Story of NotPetya, the most devastating cyber attack in history. NotPetya was this piece of malware that exploded across the internet in uh, June 26th of 2017. And it at first seemed like it was a ransomware worm like WannaCry, 
which had happened just a couple of months earlier. But then it turned out that it, there was no way to pay the ransom. It was simply a wiper uh, disguised as ransomware. It was just encrypting computers irreparably. And it targeted Ukraine, but spread across the world. And it used, I would say, three components to achieve a really virulent spread. It first used this backdoor in this Ukrainian accounting software called Emidoc that essentially allowed NotPetya's creators a, a foothold onto any machine that was running this kind of Ukrainian TurboTax or Quicken software. Anyone who was doing business in Ukraine basically had this software. And then within a, a network that was running that software on even just one machine, it could spread by two kind of intertwined techniques. One was uh, an adapted version of Mimikatz, the tool that can basically pull plain text passwords out of a Windows machine's memory and use those to log into an, any other machine that uses those credentials. Uh, and, and then the other one was the leaked NSA hacking tool, Eternal Blue, which had been patched, but still there was a patch available, but it still hadn't been patched all the machines. So. NotPetya would use that to break into unpatched machines. And then it, when a machine was patched, it could sometimes still get access with Mimikatz. And so with this kind of hopscotching technique of one exploit over the other one, it could spread to thousands of computers within uh, a multinational company's network in, in seconds sometimes. And it turned out to just be a devastating attack and um, spread to companies like Maersk and Merck and FedEx and uh, the French construction company Saint-Gobain and uh, the food producer Mondelez and just an, a long list of huge companies inflicting nine-figure, hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars in damage to each one and turned out to be the the most expensive malware attack in history. Now, your article digs into the situation at Maersk in, in detail. Uh, and one of the things that strikes me about this is that this crosses over the the cyber domain. We're talking about real things, real products that have to be shipped around the world. Right. The book I'm working on it is about this hacker group, Sandworm. And this seems to be their specialty, is that they inflict damage that does cross that line. They were responsible for the blackout attacks in Ukraine, for instance. And they deployed NotPetya, too. And NotPetya did inflict this kind of physical paralysis as well mostly by virtue of, of the companies that it hit. And Maersk is the best example of that. I mean, 17 of Maersk's 76 terminals and ports around the world were completely shut down by this with thousands and thousands of trucks just lining up outside of the gates of those of those ports, unable to check in. It, you know, it was crippling of a big part of the global logistics supply chain. Now, one of the conclusions I think that, that uh, there's general agreement on is that this was sourced from the Russians um, targeting Ukrainians. Um, but I think there's a lot of speculation and, and uh, disagreement over whether it was intended to get out beyond that, whether it was intended to get out in the wild. Uh, and that's something that you touch on in this article. Well, computer worms spread by their very nature, and they, that means they often spread out of control, or almost always spread out of control, it seems like. You know, in, in this case, it took literally, I don't know, minutes for NotPetya, it seems like, to spread beyond its intended target of Ukraine to all of these multinational companies that just had sometimes you know, an office in Ukraine, or a couple of computers even in Ukraine was all it took for one of those machines running this accounting software just to become the patient zero for their infection. Whether that was 
an accident is still up for debate. You know, the, the very least we can say that it was insanely reckless of the Russian state to launch this piece of malware that had no controls, that had no way of trying to determine if it was in Ukraine or not before causing all this destruction. Craig Williams at, at Cisco Talos made the argument to me that it, it wasn't an accident that it hit all of these multinationals, that in fact, it was trying to send a message to them too, don't do business in Ukraine. You know, uh, this is our enemy, stay away. In fact, I've heard before that one of Russia's goals with its ongoing cyber war in Ukraine, and this is really a multi-year thing now, is to scare away investments and partnerships and to make Ukraine look like a dangerous failed state that you don't want to do business in. And I think that this had that effect, you know, whether it was intended or not. I do think that multinationals are going to approach Ukraine differently when they know that it's essentially a war zone and that they could be collateral damage if they even you know, put a foot into it. What was the response from the rest of the world in terms of policy? Uh, did, you know, how did people come down on Russia? Was there punishment? Not an initially, and maybe never enough. The, it took eight months for the U.S. to institute sanctions in response to this. And it took nearly that long for really all of the five eyes to publicly state that this was Russia's, you know, Russia behind this. Um, the fact that there were sanctions is, you know, I think that that's totally the right move, but eight months is quite a long time. And then not long after those sanctions were pushed through, and it seems like the real proponents of that within the, the Trump White House were Rob Joyce and Tom Bossert, really the two most senior cyber officials. Both of them left very mysteriously from the White House, and I have not yet gotten a good answer about why. We know that, that Trump has a very complicated story notoriously about responding to russia or you know is he soft on russia uh is he willing to you know hold russian hackers to account it seems like in this case a couple of his officials were but then they were very quickly pushed out from what i can tell so that doesn't send the right message to putin either i think it's it's encouraging that there were sanctions it wasn't a as unified a message as it could have been How, you know will it deter the next one of these it's hard to say i mean there were there were even sanctions against Russia for its election interference as well. And it seems like that has continued in certain ways, um, certainly around the world. And it is hard to put Putin in a box. It seems like he resists all forms of deterrence. So I don't know if it's enough. Yeah, it strikes me that and, and I don't want to overstate it here or, or um, use hyperbole, but but it reminds me a little bit of biological warfare in, in the way that um, this sort of thing can spread and, and uh, reach beyond intended targets. And and I can't help wondering if we need to head towards some sort of international norm where this kind of attack from a nation state is is uh, prohibited and, and uh, nations around the world agree on that. I think that that does sound like the right answer. I mean, we, we talk about discussions of whether attacks on critical infrastructure are, are okay. And then sometimes it sounds like they're okay in wartime. This was a wartime attack. But it, in this medium of the internet, attacks from one nation against another don't stay in that nation. So uh, that's what happened here is that this, you know, there was, this was like a nation against nation attack that became a global epidemic immediately. And that is a dangerous, new, and I think poorly understood phenomenon. And the answer may be that we have to set rules about infectious, virulent attacks like this and just say that they're off limits, as you say, in the same way as biological warfare is. I mean, I, I think that 
treating this sort of thing and attacks on critical infrastructure by hackers as a kind of war crime seems like part of the of the larger solution. That's Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired. He's the author of The Untold Story of NotPetya, the most devastating cyber attack in history. His forthcoming book is titled Sandworm, A New Era of Cyber War and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers. We'll see that book's release next year. There's an extended version of my interview with Andy Greenberg over on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash the cyberwire. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.